0: shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to be, I think, in special prayer for so many different folks who've gone through a lot of challenging health things right now. We had one lady had a bypass this morning had another one had a bypass a couple of weeks ago, several others fighting cancer, so just remember, uh, to be in prayer for all of these, all of these folks, as well as for the upcoming Chafer Conference, which begins, that was the other announcement, which begins on March the, Monday, March the 9th, and there's sign-up sheets out in the uh, fellowship hall for those who want to help in one way or another. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we can trust you in all things because you are the God who created all things in the heavens, all things in the earth, and all things in the seas, and because you are the creator of everything and you are omnipotent, you control all things, and therefore we can trust and relax in your control of history, control of circumstances, and that we know that. No matter what happens around us, things are never as out of control as they may seem, and that we can relax in your plan and focus on our mission to grow to spiritual maturity, to be a faithful witness to the truth of your word, and then all of the results, everything else, are simply in your hands. Fathers, we continue our study of Elijah. We pray that the lessons that he learned in his spiritual life will challenge each of us in our own spiritual lives and spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Kings 17 verse 1. Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. We've looked at this. Elijah means my God is Yahweh. It's a firm statement that foreshadows exactly the nature of his ministry to defend the uh, uniqueness of Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the only true God. Uh, he is a Tishbite. probably it's a word that refers to, not to a village or location, but it's a Hebrew word meaning of the settlers, of the inhabitants of Gilead, living across the uh, Jordan in the area known as the, uh, Trans-Jordan, I've located the area over here uh, on the east side of the Jordan, and this whole area over here was referred to as Gilead. It's a Trans-Jordan. It was a, a rather primitive area uh, at this time, had not been settled or developed much since the time of the judges, and so he lived in that particular uh, that particular area. It's probably not a location. If it is, it would be in that general uh, general vicinity. These are the inhabitants of Gilead, and we've seen that he challenges Ahab with the truth of God, the reality of Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the Lord God lives before whom I stand. There shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, when we think about what what Elijah did here, this is tantamount to a capital crime and an act of act of um, uh, an act of rebellion uh, against the king and um, Elijah has uh, challenged him with the existence of God and this is at a time when Jezebel, the wife of the king, is sending out all of her uh, uh, prophets uh, and priests of Baal and they are killing Believers, They are seeking out the prophets of God and killing them. And so this took a tremendous amount of spiritual courage on Elijah's part to take this stand because he knew that this immediately uh, put his life in danger. And so he challenges uh, Ahab with this truth, and then he disappears. And we read in verse 2, Then the word of the Lord uh, came to him, saying... And we can look at the next section. There is a command and there is a promise and there is a uh, provision of God. Uh, He gives a command, he gives certain procedures and he explains how he is going to provide. And there are three tests in this chapter. The first test is in the first seven verses where we see God providing the means of life. He is going to teach Elijah that God is the God who, who supplies the source, the means of life. He is the one who will sustain him, he will provide food, he will take care of him. And during this period of time, we don't know how long it was, it could have been a year, it could have been 18 months, it's about three and a half years that there's no rain, and during this time, Elijah, at least for the first part of it, is watching this brook, uh, get a little bit smaller, a little bit less water each day and begin to wonder, well, what is going to happen when it finally dries up? And during the last part, you can imagine the last few weeks that he was becoming, uh, at least tempted to become quite concerned, quite worried about his his future and how God would provide for him. There's a second test also dealing with the area of logistical grace and God's provision of that which sustains us. And this is the first part of the episode with the widow of Zarephath. And that's covered in verses 8 through 16. And then there's a third test and that deals with the death of the widow's son and Elijah uh, prays to God and brings him, uh, brings him back to life. All three of these tests are designed to strengthen Elijah in his confidence in God and his trust in God's ability to answer his prayer so that when he goes to Mount Carmel in the next chapter and prays to God there on Mount Carmel in the midst of that tremendous conflict with the 400 uh, priests of Baal and the 450 priests of the Asherah and it is a life or death struggle He has the confidence to trust in God and to challenge them and to take his stand. And God does the same thing in our lives, taking us through various tests, various circumstances, in order to teach us about his power, his provision, and that he is indeed faithful to his promises, and we can trust him in the most uh, unusual circumstances. Now, what we see in terms of the background and the map is that Elijah is from this area of Transjordan over by uh, Jabesh Gilead in the Transjordan. He comes to Samaria where he challenges Ahab with this uh, act that would be thought of as, as high treason. And then immediately God takes him back to this brook, Karek, which it flows into the Jordan and we don't know exactly where it was, but it was someplace in this rugged country in Transjordan, and it is indeed a very uh, rugged area, and so he could hide out in that area. It's uh, it's comparable to a lot of the areas out uh, west of Austin, north of San Antonio in the hill country, uh, a lot of limestone, a lot of gullies, a lot of small uh, creeks and intermittent streams and and um, uh, a lot of uh, brush. And so it is an area where you could easily, one person could easily hide. If they didn't move around and leave any tracks or any evidence, then no one uh, would find them. So this is where God is going to have a little private tutoring session with Elijah for probably a year to 18 months. Now, for the church-age believer, this illustrates a principle that we see In the first chapter of the book of James, you might uh, turn there with me this morning. If you haven't gone through James with me before, this is one of the most significant sections on the spiritual life in all of the New Testament. James 1, 2 through 5 sets up the major theme that you find in the epistle of James. James is one of those uh, epistles in the New Testament that is uh, subject to a tremendous amount of distortion and a tremendous amount of misinterpretation. It uh, it has been common until, I think, recent years uh, for people to, to uh, interpret James as if it were the New Testament book of Proverbs. Now, if you ever re- have read through Proverbs, you know that in the Old Testament you have uh, book of Proverbs, which are just individual sayings. Now there are some sections, especially at the at the beginning of Proverbs, where you might have eight or ten or fifteen verses linked together around one theme. We may uh, get to one of those uh, later on this evening. But uh, generally speaking, when you get past chapter seven in Proverbs, you just have one saying after another. Each verse represents an autonomous saying, and there's no general theme. That connects everything together. And so in the history of the interpretation of the New Testament Epistle of James, you, you, many people have said this is the counterpart to the Old Testament Book of Proverbs. In other words, there's no, uh, there's no theme that ties and integrates the entire epistle together. It's just different subjects that are just, uh, just brought together in this, in this one letter. And the result of that is that it has led to a lot of misinterpretation of the epistle. It is one of the most tightly constructed and organized uh, epistles in the New Testament. It's basically a three-point message. I think that James, like Hebrews and First John, was probably uh, originally a, an oral message that was given by its author, and then it was written down in the form of an epistle and uh, sent to a group of Jewish believers. James was the earliest epistle to be uh to be written in the New Testament. It, I believe it was written in the early forties. so there's elements of the Epistle of James that reflect a a view of the church that is still primarily Jewish. In fact, in the uh, end of the or the beginning of the second chapter. It talks about, in, in the assemblies, how it's usually translated, but it talks about when a poor person comes into the synagogue. And they don't even have a church yet. I mean, it's it's still set up within a very Jewish, uh, Jewish context in that transition period uh, between the uh, beginning of the book of Acts and the midpoint of uh, Paul's ministry. In fact, Paul really hasn't even started his ministry by the time this epistle is written. And the theme that you have in James is how the believer is supposed to handle adversity in life. And everything relates to that. And when you get down a little further down into the first, uh, first chapter, down around verse, uh, 18, you get a structure, sort of a thesis, uh, statement, uh, verse 19. Uh, James says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear or quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. That is the outline for James. Starting in verse 21 down through the end of chapter 2, you have a section dealing with hearing and doing and then faith and works. Faith is analogous to hearing. When you hear, you believe. And doing Hear, hearing and doing and faith and works, works is the application of what you believe. Once you understand that, then you're going to avoid a lot of the misinterpretation related to lordship salvation in the second half of the second chapter. So, quick to hear, first category, slow to speak, that's chapter three, dealing with the sins of the tongue, and down through the midpoint of the uh, uh, down towards about verse 13 of chapter 3, and then you start dealing with mental attitude sins, uh, related to the command to be slow, uh, slow to anger. And that takes you down to chapter 4, verse, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 6. And then you have a conclusion. The conclusion returns to the central theme, which is endurance in times of testing. And if you read through that last section from Five seven down to five twenty. You'll you can circle words that are translated uh, patience or endurance, and you see that the writer is coming back to his main theme. He says in verse seven, "Be patient, brethren, uh, waiting patiently uh, until it receives the early and latter rains." You also be patient in verse eight, and then in verse. Um, Again talking about uh, looking at the prophets who were an example of suffering and patience. In verse 11, you've heard of the perseverance of Job, and it goes on. And so the whole conclusion deals with this issue of endurance in times of testing. And so he sets this up at the very beginning. He tells his audience what he is going to be talking about, and he is going to be addressing the challenge that every believer has to have a mental attitude of happiness not just sort of a, an attitude of of stability or calm but an attitude of joy which is which is something that only God can provide it is a it is a supernatural uh, joy in the midst of adversity it's not just avoiding mental attitude sins of grumbling Uh, Of course, that would be a sin of the tongue, but complaining, a mental attitude of uh, discouragement or or, uh, uh, letting the negative circumstances get the best of us, or it's not just an attitude of just saying, I'm not going to let that happen. It is a positive uh, joy in the midst of difficult times. And the rest of the book, really the rest of the epistle deals with how the believer is to implement that command to count it all joy when you encounter various uh, trials or tests. So we get into James 1, 2, and 3, and this gives us a New Testament framework for understanding the training that God is taking Elijah through. It's the same kind of training he takes us through. And the principles for passing the test and passing the training and getting out of boot camp, going to the next stage, are the same. So he says to, he addresses them as believers. He uses this phrase, my brethren or my beloved brethren, all the way through the epistle, indicating that he's addressing them as believers. They are Jewish believers. In verse 1, he addresses the epistle to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. This is a term related to to Jews not to Christians. It's not spiritualized to Christians. It's the early stage of the church when probably uh, the, the large majority of belief, church-age believers at this time were Jews, not Gentiles. Uh, the big shift to a Gentile-dominated church had not taken place yet. So he's writing to them within a Jewish background, Jewish context. So he says, my brethren, and then we have the command, count it, all joy when you fall into various trials. And so the command here is a command that is to characterize a believer's life that we're going to fall into various trials. You can't avoid that. And the idea of falling into a trial indicates the suddenness, the unexpectedness of things that can go wrong. You are just driving down the highway and suddenly you have a flat tire and you thought everything was Was fine or you wake up one morning and your air conditioner has gone out or your heater has gone out or you wake up one morning all of a sudden you don't feel well and you go to the doctor and you discover that you have some, some serious disease or you go into work and realize that everybody's been lying to you and the company really isn't in good shape and, and they're closing their doors and you've got 15 minutes to pack up everything in your desk and leave. And those kinds of things are happening all over all over the, the uh, nation right now. And, uh, one of the things that's happening today that is, is extremely discouraging for a lot of people is that they're discovering that how many corporations have just been lying, misrepresenting what's on their balance sheet, what their financial records are, are and as a result of that, Uh, we've gotten into a lot of the financial mess that we're on. It's related to a lack of integrity. It's related to greed in an inordinate way, uh, because you, and it's working in all kinds of systems. You have all kinds of expressions of, of inordinate greed. You have inordinate greed, uh, on the, on the side of the government that has thought that, oh, won't it be wonderful if we can just get as many people in America as we possibly can to own a home? And so the uh, average number of homeowners has gone uh, higher than it should. And many people who were qualified to have a mortgage uh, should never have been qualified to have a mortgage. They, They didn't have the income necessary. They were... Uh, mortgage companies following a pattern of, of a lack of integrity fudged figures and pushed things through. And as a result, people were qualified for loans and for houses that they, that they really couldn't afford. And eventually the, the bill is coming due. It's interesting that up until the end of uh, World War II, only about 46% of Americans were homeowners. That number went from 46% to about 62% in the post-war, uh, boom, the post-war prosperity. And it stayed right around 62 to 65% until you got into the early part of this century. Around 2001, 2002, this spiked up to 69%. And it's, you may say, well, that's what, what's the, Big difference between 62 or 63 or 64% and 69%. Well, that difference are the number of people who are now, uh, being foreclosed on because they can't meet their payments. And this is having a tremendous ripple effect throughout the economy. And that's just one aspect of the, uh, economic problem today, but it has been fed by a, an inordinate greed Now, you know, some people always get upset about the fact that capitalism is based on greed, like communism and socialism and all of the other economic systems aren't based on greed. Uh, Everybody, greed is nothing more than self-interest. You have an inordinate self-interest where you start doing things unethical in order to feed your self-interest, and there's corrections that are built into the system. And that's what we're seeing right now is corrections that are built into a system where uh, in a somewhat free market, we haven't had a truly free market in in many decades, but in a somewhat free market where people were uh, able to engage in somewhat unethical practices, eventually it comes back to, to haunt them. And that's the self-correction that is built into a free market economy. And the government has to learn to let it happen and not to try to control it because you you can't control it. You have to let it happen when the government gets involved trying to control it as they are now. Uh, the result is that it usually makes the makes it more painful and makes the pain last longer rather than just getting getting past it, sort of like when you were a kid, and you went in to get a shot, you made a big deal about it, and you screamed and you tried to wiggle wiggle away from your parents. It just made everything last a lot longer, and it was a lot more unpleasant for everybody. If you just, you know, bit your tongue and and took it, then it was over with in about two seconds, and you could go on. So, uh, this is what we have today, and it's it's because of so many different factors in our culture that are related to the inability to handle suffering and adversity. We just want to keep it away from everybody. We don't want anybody to go through hard times. We think that it's just terrible to go through. And the things, the the lessons that people learn, believer or unbeliever, by going through difficult times and adversity are, are what's necessary to build character, what's necessary to teach integrity, what's necessary to get away from this instant gratification syndrome that we've gotten into in Western civilization and to uh, get outside of our own little self-absorbed worlds and begin to think that maybe there's something more significant than my own personal pleasure and uh, that life really isn't all about me. So once the government starts getting involved like it's been, it's going to make it last longer, and we're all going to see a lot of things uh, go on. And fortunately the best place in the world uh, to live in the midst of this crisis is in the United States, and the best place to live in the United States is in Texas, and the best place to live in Texas is in Houston. So, you know, there are going to be people, and maybe some in this congregation, that are going to uh, feel it more. When you're the person that doesn't have a job and can't get a job or is losing their house, being foreclosed on, then it doesn't matter whether you're living in Los Angeles or whether you're living in New York or whether you're living in Houston, if you're the one going through it, it's just as difficult. And the principles that you have to use to get through that and to get through those difficulties are the same principles that you apply in everything, the same principles that Elijah had to apply uh, while he is waiting on the Lord to... Uh, provide for him, to take care of him on a, week, on a weekly basis, because he's going through the same kind of economic crisis in the world around him. It's brought on by the, by the uh, drought and famine uh, that re- has resulted from that. So there are all kinds of trials or tests that we get into. The word for a test is the Greek word perosmos. And the verb is in the lower part of the slide, Perazzo, And the uh, the word perasmos is one of those words that can have two senses to it. It is a test or it can be a temptation. A test or a temptation. Now, a lot of people have trouble trying to understand the difference between a test and a temptation, especially when you look down uh, a little further in the... In the chapter down to verse 13, where James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And it's the same word. So people can look at this and say, well, wait a minute. Up here, uh, we're tested. Our faith is tested. We encounter various trials, and God uses that to produce spiritual growth. But later on down here, uh, God doesn't tempt us. So how do we understand this? Well, we have to understand that there is a distinction between an objective test and a subjective temptation. And this is what uh, James tries to explain in verses 14 and 15, where he says that each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. It's an internal attraction. I know that, that all of y'all are in great shape and thin, and nobody here has ever tried to go on a diet, so this illustration may not work, but it always works for me. When I have tried to lose weight, and I'm trying to restrict the calorie intake, if I get up in the morning, I do okay at breakfast, and I, it's lunchtime, and I've gotten busy, and I'm out, and I can't get back to where I need to get to eat what I need to eat, and all of a sudden it's 2 o'clock and I'm re- ready to eat the steering wheel in the car or, uh, you know, chew leather or anything just to get something in my stomach, and somebody offers me french fries, hamburger, chocolate, milkshake. It's just real easy to say, okay, yeah, I'll just worry about the diet tomorrow. That's because in a state of weakness, there is an internal attraction to that food that I shouldn't eat, and I am drawn to it easily. But if I am, have managed to eat whatever diet food I'm eating, whatever rabbit food I'm on, if I manage to eat that at the right time, and then the opportunity comes to eat something that I would love to eat but I'm trying to avoid at the moment, then it's easier to do that. You just say, well, I'm not even attracted right now because I have a sense of having my appetite satisfied, and so I'm not attracted to that. So it's the difference between I'm still being offered something that I don't want or shouldn't take, but in one case, because my focus is wrong, I'm in a state of weakness, I yield to that i am subjectively drawn to it that's what we think of as temptation on the other side there's just the external uh, offer of something and i'm in a position of strength and so i'm not attracted to it this is the kind of thing that when when we read in the scripture that jesus was tested in all points as we are sometimes that's translated tempted uh, we read that as as internal attraction well, that's not what's going on with the Lord because that internal attraction what, that that really comes out of our sin nature just wasn't there for Him. But that doesn't mean the external test wasn't there. That was the same external test that Adam had. He didn't have, when he when when uh, Eve offered him the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. There was no sin nature draw or attraction there uh, to eat the fruit. Now, after he sinned, there would have been that element because he would have had a fallen nature, and that's part of what we deal with. So that's the difference between an external test and an internal attraction. So James says, "...count it all joy when you encounter various tests." And then the uh, most translation just translates the translate that next participle as a simple participle, knowing, but it's actually an adverbial participle in the Greek, and it should be understood as a causal participle. You can count it joy because you know something. Once again, the emphasis is on knowledge of Scripture, knowledge of God, knowledge of promises, knowledge of God's plan, and because you know something, you know a principle that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The only way that you and I can grow strong in the spiritual life is to go through tests. And each time we have a volitional decision where we have to choose to apply doctrine or not, to apply a promise or not, to handle it my way or God's way, every time that choice comes up, that's a test. A test doesn't have to be something big with neon lights and and lots of fanfare. It's Each and every time we face a choice where we can either apply the word and do it right or try to do it on our own, that's the test. And so James says, because we know a principle that the testing of your faith produces, and it's not patience. I keep praying for patience now. I still don't have it. It's endurance. It's a different word. It's hoopamene. It has the idea of hanging in there, staying in fellowship, continuing to walk by the Spirit, uh, applying the Word even though it doesn't feel good, even though I have a tremendous uh, desire from my sin nature to be angry or to be uh, worried or fearful. Whatever it may be, I am going to uh, claim promises, stay in fellowship, hopefully for a little bit longer than I did the last time. Building endurance, and that endurance leads to and is part of the maturation process. In one four, James says, "But let endurance have its maturing work." That's really the sense of the of the Greek there. It's not perfect work. It is the word group from uh, telios, meaning completion or maturation. So let endurance have its uh, maturing effect or maturing work, that you may become uh, mature and complete, lacking nothing. And we lack nothing because God's word, God's power is sufficient for each and every situation. And then we have a verse in verse 5, that talks about the solution of prayer, that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So when we're in a circumstance and we need to figure out how to apply God's word, uh, we are to ask God to give us wisdom or insight into uh, applying his word. That's what that means. I think when I was in high school and trying to cram for a chemistry final, which I didn't pass, I thought that this was a great promise. I could just keep claiming it, and God would give me enough enough wisdom. See, we think of wisdom in terms of, of uh, knowledge like the Greeks did, but this is a Hebrew concept of wisdom. It's a Jewish-oriented epistle where wisdom has to do with skillful application of doctrine. So James is saying if you're in that test and you're not sure how to handle it through the use of God's Word, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally. his The freeness of his grace, the sufficiency of God's grace is emphasized here. God is willing to give us uh, more than we need to handle the situation in terms of the wisdom without reproach, and it will be given to him. That is a great promise. If you lack the wisdom, the understanding of how to apply doctrine in that circumstance— Pray, and God will give you the information you need from his word to handle the circumstance. But there's a condition, verse 6, but let him ask in faith. See, it's trust in God. This is the faith rest drill. Let him ask in faith without doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. You're just spiritually unstable, well, God, give me the wisdom, and then I'll figure out whether or not I want to use it. Uh, let me uh, see what your options are, just one of many options, and then I'll decide whether I want to do it your way or my way or somebody else's way. That's what James, uh, James is dealing with there. We have to go to the Lord trusting him, trusting in that, uh, in his solution. Now, another promise that goes with this is the one in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Again, it's talking about temptation, testing, same word that we have in James 1-2, perasmas. No temptation has overtaken you. Same idea, no test has come into your experience, except as is common to man. Now, you may think there are certain features of your situation that are unique, but generally speaking, it's a similar category of experience as what everybody else has faced. Uh, Jesus didn't go through every single circumstance and situation that you and I go through, but he went through every kind of situation, circumstance uh, that we go through. So, what we go through are the same kinds of things every other fallen human being goes through. But, in contrast to the vagaries, the uncertainties, the instabilities of life, God is stable. Man is unstable, our circumstances are unstable. God is faithful and will not allow us to be tested beyond what you are able. Now, I've got to say something here because this is one of the most misunderstood, misapplied, misinterpreted uh, promises that you'll ever run into. How many times you say, well, God's not going to let you take you through something you can't handle. So if you're going through it, then God must think you can handle it. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has given you everything you need to handle each and every situation in this book. And you can handle it by taking the principles that are here and applying it to those circumstances. No matter how tough it is, no matter how hard it is, it's not saying that well, if you're not a young believer, God's only going to allow you to go through a certain amount of adversity. We've all known young believers who have gone through horrible adversity. Just think about some of the... Um, and there were uh, thousands, maybe even in the order of hundred to 200,000 uh, Jews that trusted in Jesus as Messiah during the Holocaust. There were Christians and there were Messianic Jews that is, Jews who had believed in Jesus as Messiah, who were rounded up and sent to uh, Dachau and uh, Ravensbrück and Auschwitz and all of the other uh, camps. And those believers that were in those camps gave the gospel to other other believers. And I've heard figures ranging from 60,000 to maybe 200,000 uh, <clears throat> unsaved Jews trusted in Jesus as their Messiah in the midst of those camps. Now, they have about just that much doctrine to handle one of the most horrible circumstances in life. And you'd say, and, and but they have available to them in the Word enough to handle any situation. That's what this is talking about. God is faithful who won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. Your ability resides in the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God and the Word of God enables us to handle any and every uh, circumstance. And then the last clause states, uh, but with the temptation will we'll make a way to escape. I, oh, I can get out from under it, right? Now that's what it says. Make a way to escape that you can bear it. To escape the self-destruction of handling the problem through your own sin nature and your own resources. The, you, you're able to escape the negative, subjective uh, s- stress results, stress-producing results of the circumstances because you apply the word so you're able to endure it. You're able to hupomone, you're able to hang in there with joy in the midst of those circumstances. Well, that's what God is teaching. That's what God is teaching uh, Elijah. It's wisdom training. Now, on our way back to Elijah, I want you to go to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Now, Proverbs is... Designed to teach basic skill principles for living, so that we can live a skillful life that 's the meaning of wisdom in a jewish sense it 's not uh, it's not abstract philosophical knowledge, which is what the Greeks refer to by Sophia Hochma in the in the Hebrew had to do with producing something. Of, of, beauty and something of value. One of the first times we run into the word in the Old Testament is when it is used in relation to the, uh, skill of the craftsmen who, um, who constructed all the furniture in the ark, the goldsmiths, the silversmiths, the, uh, jewelers, the, uh, those who embroidered the images onto the fabric, the weavers, all of those people were given skill at producing what they were, what they were making. That's that word hochma that's used there. So when you transfer to spirituality, you go through this process of learning basic facts about the word, just basic knowledge. And then as we believe it and the Holy Spirit uh, transfers it into our soul, it becomes what uh, Paul refers to as epinosis, which is a fuller or usable knowledge. But usable knowledge isn't used knowledge. It's just usable, just has the potential for spiritual growth. And then when it is applied and we practice that application again and again and again, not imperfect practice because imperfect practice just, just uh, uh, builds bad habits, but perfect practice makes perfect, and as we apply it uh, in in our lives, then we develop a skill at it. You you, you don't learn how to play the piano beautifully by just sitting down at the keyboard once a week. You practice over and over and over again. You don't become skilled at using a handgun in personal defense by just using it once every three or four months. You have to go down to the range and shoot frequently so that you maintain your familiarity, your dexterity with the firearm so that when an emergency happens, you can use it skillfully. Same thing with the word. You practice it over and over and over again so that when the tough times really come, you've already built into your thinking that habit pattern of applying the word so that you can apply it skillfully in the midst of crisis circumstances. And that means preparation, It means that you think about it ahead of time and you realize the word of God has a priority. And so right now you're going to take the time to listen to tapes, to listen to media on on the web, to study every single day and to learn as much as you can and apply as much as you can on a consistent basis. Because once the crisis comes, it's too late. Once the rug gets pulled out from under you, it's too late to go back and say, okay, I need to cram about 100 hours of Bible class in so that I can figure out how to handle this. It's too late. Uh, the test has come, and you fail the test, and you get run over by the circumstances of life because you didn't take the time ahead of time to develop the skill at applying the Word. I learned this lesson the hard way as a pastor when I was just a rookie pastor in my first church, and there there are so many things that you just, as a pastor, you just don't know when you go into a congregation. You don't necessarily know it when you've been around a while. I look out there and I see nice, wonderful faces, and I have no idea some of the adversity that many of you may be facing in in your own lives that you just don't go around telling everybody about. And I've learned that there's very few of us in life past the age of, of uh, 25 or 30 that haven't had to face some serious disappointments or heartaches or adversity at some level. And we all go through it at one time, uh, one time or another. And um, when I first went down to candidate at a church down in Lamarck back in uh, 1981. Uh, I went down there and I had just learned that a, a friend of mine that in fact had been a camper of mine at Penang, later on he worked with me uh, leading backpack trips and canoe trips, was in medical school down at UTMB. And so I called him up, told him I was going to be down there to uh, speaking down there. And, and uh, so he came up and and I think I went down to that church and, and spoke five or six times over maybe two or three months. And he came up, and once he realized there was a Bible church down there that he could go to, they he and his wife became part of the congregation. And his dad died suddenly of a heart attack right around Christmas. And he just had a tremendous testimony. He's very close to his dad. And they just had a tremendous testimony of how to handle uh the death of a loved one because your whole mentality is just grounded in the truths of God's word. You know that, that even though it's sad to have lost someone who is not there, someone you talk to frequently, someone you're close to, you know they're in heaven and you can relax and trust in the Lord. So about three months after I'd gone to that church, I was teaching uh, in... Uh, some, I don't even know what I was teaching in, but I got to where I was talking about the importance of preparing ahead of time, and I used him as an example. And there was a family who came every Wednesday night. We didn't have too many people at that church who came on Wednesday night, had about 12. And so we didn't even teach in the auditorium. We were just back in a large Sunday school classroom where it's real intimate. So you're just, you're just right there in front of everybody. And they were just weeping. And I'm just like, what in the world have I done? I mean, they are just almost out of control and hysteric. And it turned out that uh, about 20 years before, their high school daughter had been killed in an automobile accident. But up to that point, they had zero doctrine in their soul. And here it was 20 years later. And it was their emotions and their grief were as raw as when it had happened. And they had never been able to to really uh, apply the word and just accept that as God's God's plan for their life. And since that had happened, they'd become more and more involved in the church, and they were there every Wednesday night. But that was just one area where the doctrine, just, just they just weren't applying it. And... Um, and it was interesting because at that time, within about three or four years prior to that, I had had two uh, friends of mine that I had grown up with, and we had all uh, been going to, grown up going to Camp Penile. We had all grown up back when they had a youth group over at Baraka Church. We'd all been in the youth group there, and all these families were, uh, both these families were very strong uh, believers, and both of them had lost a son, died in an, and, uh, one one way or another. And I was close to those families, and I knew how they handled the death of a son in the midst of difficult times by the application of doctrine. I could just see that contrast. And the contrast is that if you wait to the crisis to learn the doctrine, to handle the crisis, it's too long. And you're going to go through extremely difficult times because you have uh procrastinated the preparation of your soul. And that's what is depicted in Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 20, and going down through the end of the chapter. And I just want to read through this. It's pretty easy to understand um, the the basic thoughts that are here. In verse 20 you have wisdom personified. Wisdom is the application, the skillful application of uh, doctrine personified as a person who is, as an individual who is calling, inviting people to come and listen. Bible doctrine is available all the time. We have more doctrine available right now than any other time in history. You can listen to me, you can listen to Charlie Clough, you can listen to probably 20 different solid doctrinal pastors out there every day on the Internet. You could listen 24-7. Uh, if you get tired of listening to me you can listen to somebody else you can listen 3 or 4 hours to i don't know how many you never could do that before you can cram them all on your iPod you can put uh, you know probably put a 10,000 or 15,000 hours of bible doctrine on your iPod and just stream it all day long and yet there's more negative volition more resistance more apathy towards the word than at any other time in american history so wisdom is as depicted as out in the public square, walking up and down, uh, inviting everyone to come and listen. Wisdom calls aloud outside, verse 20. She raises her voice in the open square. She cries out in the chief concourses at the openings of the gates in the city. She speaks her words, and all of that is to depict the availability of doctrine that God has made it available, and will provide it for anyone who wants it. Verse 22, this is what the, how the invitation is expressed. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? See, the contrast is between a simple person who doesn't know how to skillfully apply the word, and it's a borderline on naivete or uh, not being in the realm of reality, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning. See, in negative volition, you've convinced yourself you're right, you don't need God, and so you're suppressing truth in unrighteousness. Scorners delight in their scorning. Fools hate knowledge. Somebody who rejects the, the word is a fool. Wisdom says, turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. Notice the generosity of the verb there. Pour out my spirit upon you. I will make my words known to you because I have... But, and there's a contrast with verse 24. Because I have called and you refused. You didn't go to class. You didn't learn. You thought you would just show up on Sunday or maybe you'd show up Easter or uh, Christmas with the nod to God crowd and the Sunday-only crowd thinking it really didn't matter the rest of the week. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I will laugh at your calamity. See, this is God. You wait to the last minute. Well, it's too late now. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction like a whirlwind or tornado, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me. See, it's too late now. It's a process. You have to learn it. You have to take time and the discipline to study it and apply it. When the time comes for application and serious adversity... You can't, it, it won't work. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way, divine discipline, and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. They will uh, reap what they sow. They will experience the consequences of their bad decisions. But the hope, verse 33, you can always change today. There's always a future. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Notice that, without Fear of evil. That's really the basic issue that uh, Elijah is going to face, and we all face in life when the resources of life, the physical resources of life, disappear. And there's no money, there's no food, there's no job, uh, there's no health. How are we going to make it? And that is when, uh, when fear comes in. Now fear the way to handle fear is always through the use of a promise and the promise that God gave Elijah is expressed in verse 4 uh 1 Kings 17 it shall be that you shall drink of the brook and i have commanded the ravens to provide for you God is saying the same thing to him that he said to says to Paul in 2 Corinthians um, i believe 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, my grace is sufficient for you. I will provide for you. It may not be the way you think uh, you should be provided for. He's going to provide for uh, Elijah through ravens. We see his response in verse, uh, verse 5 and 6. Or excuse me, let's just look at verse 4. He's going to provide through the ravens. Now ravens were an unclean animal in the Mosaic law. Now that didn't mean that you couldn't touch a raven, but it meant that you couldn't eat a raven. So I guess that's why God decided to use a raven because he knew Elijah wouldn't, you know, wouldn't kill the raven and eat the raven. Um, if he really got hungry, because there's just not a lot of food that a raven's gonna bring, but it's gonna sustain you. And it's going to be uh it's gonna be enough. So the ravens, and it would be more than one raven, but the ravens would provide uh for him there, and God's grace would be enough to take care of him. Now we see his response in verses five and six, which is the response of faith. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Very simple. God said, "Go do this and he did it. Too many people try to make God's word difficult, hard to understand, because basically it violates their agenda, and so they, they really don't want to do what God says to do. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink uh, from the brook. And so God provided for him, and God sustained him in the same way that God provides and, for us and sustains us. And he does this through his word. And so what we're going to get into now, just introduce it tonight, a little review on the faith rest drill. We all need to be reminded of this because when times get tough, it's the doctrine in your soul, the promises you know, that you've memorized, that you've drilled yourself on. These are the principles that are going to get, get you through the difficult times. Step one is to claim a promise. Now, what it means to claim a promise is simply to know what the promise is, to rehearse it, and you're basically holding God to his word. You're saying, God, you told me you would do this, and I'm holding you to that, and I expect that in my circumstances I will see you fulfill what you have, you have promised. That's what we mean by claiming a promise. It is, in the words of the writer of the Hebrews, mixing your faith with the promise of God. And the second step, we think through. We don't just claim the promise, but we think about it. One of the things I like about memorizing Scripture is it forces me to go over it and over it and over it again in my head. And by the time I've rehearsed it about 50 times, I begin to hear and see some things that are in that verse that I didn't see or pay attention to the first time. I go back and I read the whole context and I think it through and as you do that, you begin to see that, that what the text is talking about and what it's saying. So we begin to think through the doctrinal rationales, the thinking that is embedded in the promise. And then that allows us to reach certain conclusions about what God is going to do. And this we call appropriating the doctrinal conclusions. But it starts with knowing the promise. You don't just skip to the conclusions and say, Oh, I know a doctrinal principle. Jesus didn't say to Satan when he was being tested in the wilderness, Oh, let me see. I know a doctrinal principle that can counter that. He quoted the word again and again and again. He quoted the word and used the word accurately. So it starts with the word. You don't skip step one and step two. You work through the whole process and applying the word. So next time we'll come back. Look at some of the promises, that and principles that Elijah would know, and that are established in other passages later on in Scripture as well. That we can know, that we can apply in the midst of circumstances that cause fear. Where every week I cite the same verses that we're to be anxious for nothing. And one of the, um, I, I was doing some more work on that word today that's translated uh, anxious worry because there's always a sense in which uh, we think, well, it's it's sort of good to worry. It gives us an edge. If I've got uh, something tomorrow, a presentation, or I've got something I have to do at work or whatever it is, there's a sense in which thinking about it sharpens my focus, sharpens my concentration. I think about it more. There's a good sense to that. So how do you distinguish between that good sense of sort of worry or concern and the bad sense? And I think that and what we'll talk about next time is what makes the difference is in the biblical concept of worry or anxiety when it becomes a sin is that when we're focusing on a situation and we're we're taking uh, emotional ownership of that circumstance as if we actually control the outcome. That's when we move into the biblical sin of worry or anxiety, is when we become emotionally vested in the circumstance where we now believe that we are responsible for that which we have no control over. That's when it becomes worry and anxiety, which is the first stage to fear and panic. So we'll come back and look at promises on that uh, next time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to be reminded that we are to prepare ourselves through your word, that your word protects, it provides, it uh, supplies our nourishment, it gives us everything we need to grow. And once the negative circumstances hit, it's too late to, to figure out what the principles are and what the promises are. So challenge us to be more faithful, more diligent, in our own personal study, application of your word, that we may continue to grow uh, grow by your word. As Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, we are to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.